and welcome to episode five of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast. I'm Guy Swarbrick and today we'll be stepping outside of the club, albeit not very far outside, to look at the 750MC Alfa Romeo Championship, which the club supports. With me, I have Andy Robinson, who I think I'm right in saying is the championship coordinator for the Alfa Romeo Championship. Is that right, Andy? Yes, that's right. Now, rather pretentiously, I borrowed your job title when I set up the A-Rock and Alfa Romeo Championship virtual race series a couple of months ago. But what does the real championship coordinator do? Well, it's, they're all split into two. What you do on race days, I think, or race weekends, and what goes on at, around and outside of that. Race weekends, and I'm, I'll just preface what I'm going to say by, by saying it's the role I've made up to be done in the way I think it should be done. Uh, there isn't a template the role of coordinator is defined in Motorsport UK regulations, but it doesn't say a lot about what it entails. It just says you can't be a coordinator and race in the championship because you have to be uh, neutral and and all the rest of it. On race weekends, you, you start by signing on as a coordinator in the same way that drivers sign on. Drivers have to sign on at the start of the day, present their license. Uh, they, they're cross-checked against the entry list and they're given... Um, a ticket for scrutineering for the car and maybe a program or two other things. Um, so I have to sign in the same way as a coordinator. And I normally then I will exchange phone numbers with the clerk of the course that's handling our, our championship for the weekend. That may be different people, uh, particularly the BRSCC. They have a regional structure, so you tend to get some commonality of clerk of the course, but other times, you know, it varied quite a lot. So that he or she can ring me straight away if there's a, an issue, they want to see a particular driver or the problem or there's a delay. And likewise, if I've got an issue, if a driver's had a problem with his car or her car and is struggling to get it uh, fixed, I need to let them know that that person may not be on the grid and what arrangements can we make to get them on it if they miss qualifying, for example. And there's usually a mechanism if they can find track time. A driver has to do three laps of the circuit before being allowed to start in, in qualifying normally. But if they miss qualifying because of a problem, this is just an example. And they're trying to negotiate for them to go out with a course car. They don't have to do it at racing speed, but they have to drive around the circuit three times. And the parade lap usually counts as one. So in reality, it's only, only one or two laps. And of course, that doesn't ever happen in your championship, what with Alphas being so reliable. <laughs> well, uh, it doesn't happen that often, actually. But, you know, these things crop up race cars are temperamental beings the more modified they are the more temperamental they are so that's that's one example so there's there's a dialogue between myself and the clerk throughout the day and i spend the race and the qualifying sessions in race control watching the screens and then following up any issues that the clerk wants to if he wants to see a driver for an infringement or something like that then i make sure that that i get the driver there to do that I make sure everybody's at driver briefings at the start of the day. They've been through scrutineering. Really, it's progress chasing all around to make sure we've got as many cars on the grid as we can possibly get at the right time, and making sure people know where they're supposed to be when. It's all written down in the instructions, but drivers are drivers. Some people read them assiduously. Others wait, perhaps don't, <laughs> aren't yeah. so assiduous about that. Uh, so there's a certain amount of chasing around involved. When the results sheets come out with qualifying times or race results, I go and collect those and distribute them. Lots of people have them online these days. It's not, not so much paper as it used to be. But it's it's all that kind of anything that crops up, really. If I get um, questions asked, 
if a driver has a problem with the car and wants to start from the back of the grid or something, I have to negotiate that. So basically throughout a race day until the second race or the last race of ours is finished, I'm on my feet constantly. I walk miles back and forth to race control, talking to drivers, encouraging them, making them all feel welcome. This was a big thing I set out to do at the start because from conversations I had with some drivers, they hadn't felt particularly welcome at times or well-supported by, well, there wasn't a coordinator, but by members of the panel who were perhaps there helping out. Um, I wanted every driver, as a matter of fact, they were on pole by a mile or at the back of the grid by a mile. I wanted them all to feel welcome. They're all important parts of, our, of the championship. So a lot of what I do on race day is making sure I'm talking to everybody, listening to everybody, uh, asking them how we're doing, how's the car, how are they feeling about racing, if they've been out, haven't raced for a couple of months or something. How are they feeling about getting back into it? Anything that I'm establishing personal contact constantly with each individual driver, not not to be irritating, I hope, but just to say, look, there's anything you need, I'm here to help sort it out so you can concentrate on driving. And you've been on the other side of the fence, haven't you? You were a driver previously. Uh, yes, I did drive for um, a few years, nine, uh, seven years to be exact. I started racing when I was 59. <laughs> Okay, so I've got another five years to get my act together and get a license then. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, it does amuse me when I talk to people and they say, oh, you know, I'm nearly 40 now, I'm too old. I said, well, <laughs> so, uh, I said, never too old, really. So, yeah, I started racing in 2010 and I finished in 2017. And um, I had a mixed record. I, I spent a lot of time in the gravel and I also won a few races, which was which was great. So... <laughs> bit erratic but and i suppose that's a good range of experience for a championship coordinator to have you wouldn't necessarily want somebody who'd won every race and never had any difficulties no and it, it you know i had a gearboxes exploding i had a couple of accidents i've had <laughs> some spectacular off-track excursions and emerged unscathed so yes i've um, and i've you know seen the, the had a really good drives as well so yeah it helps to have an empathy with drivers i think and, and one way, I think I'm naturally an empathetic person anyway, but if, if you if you know what it's like, then it, it helps, I think. It also gives you more, a bit more credibility. You know, if you're saying, well, the hell do you know? You know? <laughs> so that's what happens on race weekends. I assume for the rest of the year, there's not that much to do. <laughs> uh, well, it, I, I often joke, it's like having a full-time job for no money. You know, it's um, The other things I, I do on race day is present the awards and give a speech and uh, congratulate everybody. And we have all the drivers gathered together after the last race and we, we, we hand out the prizes. In between, uh, there, there are routine things like previews. About a week beforehand, we'll post, I'll post a race preview on, on our website based on the latest entry lists. Keith Ford, who's another member of the panel, often does that with me or for me. I do the race reports afterwards, and that's quite involved. Moving on from a theme about speaking to every driver and knowing where they're at and how they're feeling and, and making sure they're, they're feeling supported. I think if you do a race report, you don't mention after drivers. Just mention who came first, second, or third, or whatever. It's, it's disappointing. Or if you are mentioned and, and the facts are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Which is easy to do, you know. You you have to go around and say, you know, you started on pole, but you finished fourth. What happened? Uh, well, my tires were off, or uh, I had a bit of an excursion, went off track, and I could catch up again, or you know, whatever it is. I try and make sure I know what happened to everybody, and if I don't, I phone them up afterwards and say, you know, what what um, 
how was your race? What did you do? Then make sure in the race report that everybody gets mentioned where they are. Obviously, some would be mentioned more than others if they're leading their class or whatever. But and if there's a a great dice going on for a particular position, you know that's uh, gets a bit more attention. Yeah. So do race reports. I'm phoning people in between. I'm trying to encourage drivers out that haven't raced for a while or asking how they're progressing if they're building a car, for example. I'm emailing people constantly with information. I'm liaising with the 750 Motor Club as well, making sure they people have joined and they're, they're eligible and reminding them if they aren't, for example. Three of our drivers hadn't registered with the 750 Motor Club a couple of weeks ago. Okay, it's not that urgent because we're not racing yet, but... Um, I'll send him a reminder. I'll talk to Nikki at 750 or Giles and try and keep my finger on what's happening uh, so the drivers are well aware of it. What the program is, you know, there's a, a timetable for a weekend. Being last race on a Sunday is often not very not very popular. So sometimes I try and renegotiate, accepting you'll have, that will happen some of the time. But if you're racing at Anglesey and you've got a driver who's got to be in Bournemouth 7 the next morning to start work <laughs> and you finish at 7 p.m., that's going to dissuade the, that driver from entering, potentially. So it's trying to get the best place in the timetables we can. It's reasonable, accepting that you have to take your share of time slots that aren't the most popular ones. So there's discussion going on about that all the time. So that's that's listed examples. There's almost anything that comes up, and I'll wade in and try and sort it out and help if, if I can. So that's the tactical side of the role, if you like. But you're also involved with the more strategic side of things as well, aren't you? I think I saw my first Alfa Romeo championship race at Brands in the late 80s, and it was a BRSCC championship then, and it remained one until last season. What was your involvement in the decision to move to the 750 Motor Club? Well, a number of things triggered that, and I've seen um, Peter Daly quoted in the press as not quoting me, but quoting things that had been said about the BRSCC and denying them. But I felt we were drifting, and drifting I mean, even three years before 2014, 15, when I was racing, you know, sometimes we'd get grids of 30 plus. And uh, we were down to right on the cutoff point for Motorsport UK. Just explain what that means. If you haven't averaged 16 starters, not entries, starters on the grid, if you haven't averaged at least 16, you're at risk of getting a warning as a championship. They won't throw you out straight away if it's a one-off season. But if that happens two years in a row and you've had a warning the previous season, there are various things they they can do. Um, They can downgrade it to a series. The series is different from a championship. A series is a series of individual races. There aren't things like points, totals, and that sort of thing. There are just a series of individual events that people enter and do well in or don't do so well in whatever. Um, Or they can close the championship altogether, as they have done with a couple of championships this year, this past year, I should say. And I felt we were at risk of that happening because we were, the season I took over and the season before, we'd been right around the 16 mark. And I knew from talking to a number of people, there were a number of reasons for that. One was some drivers hadn't felt welcome. Some drivers felt that certain drivers were favored over others. I'm not saying that was, that was true. I don't have any evidence of that, but there was some negative feeling about how things were going with the Alpha Championship. So that was one thing. Uh, cost was another. Cost kept going up and up and up. Entry fees, it seemed to me, were not transparent because the drivers had come to me complaining that a friend of theirs who raced in the Porsche Championship was paying much lower entry fees. Why Why was that? And you couldn't actually get at that information. 
unless you knew somebody was registered with that other championship. So there's a sense of unfairness was developing. Certain things were introduced that actually made, in my opinion, made it more difficult for us to increase our grid sizes. One of those was constantly increasing the entry fees by significant amounts as well, not like two or three pounds. And entry fees last season with the BRC were about 435 quid for a weekend. That's a lot of money for a driver to find is doing it off their own back. Maybe with a little bit of sponsorship, but probably not. More or less their own money. So as I said, they kept jacking the cost of entry up. They then introduced a, a surcharge. If you hadn't entered a fortnight before the race meeting, you got a, at the risk of having a surcharge imposed, which is like another 30, 35 pounds on top. Now, I, I can understand that you don't want, because a racing club has to organize an event in advance, they need to have a pretty good idea of how many cars are likely to be. So they'd be phoning me up and asking me on, on occasions if entries were a bit low, how many we were expecting, and so forth. And you don't want everybody entering like two days before the event because that causes, you know, it's chaotic. If you've got a pit garage allocation, for example, and they've allocated you what they think is this, a required number of pit garages, and then you get eight more entries the day before the event. It's, uh, you know, I can quite understand that they would want drivers to enter as early as possible. But two weeks ahead of them was ridiculous. And a number of drivers are really annoyed at that. Purely from a psychological perspective, you'd have thought it was more sensible to say entry fees are going up to £470, but there's a £35 discount if you register two weeks in advance. Uh, yeah, psychologically, I agree. Yes, although if you'd said it was 470 they wouldn't. <laughs> I'd be having my ear bent <laughs> a long way. So that was two things. I suppose the third thing was they did, did other things that seemed to make it worse. So they started introducing new championships and writing to all our, you know, or contacting all our drivers saying, why don't you come into this instead? Well, <laughs> and I was thinking, why are they hope? I can understand they want to, they need to change championships. You know, it's not, nothing is static in motorsport in that sense. But to introduce competition and, and to encourage drivers implicitly to desert our championship for this new one they're running and they put sweeteners in and make it uh, the entry fees about, two-thirds of what our guys were paying. There was a whole range of things, and it was obvious to me I was very dissatisfied with the lack of support from the RSCC. Their chief coordinator accepted, I must say. Annie Maddox was extremely supportive, but she was a person helped with logistics in advance and on race day, and you know that part of it was fine. She was great. But things were very rigid as well. You know, it has to be... A series of 16 races, which are eight double headers, full stop. There's no variation in that because that's the way we've always done it kind of approach. And I didn't feel I was getting any any support. Whose job is it to get more of our cars on the grid, more alphas out there on the track? Nobody else's but mine, apparently, or the panels, or you know, the people associated directly with the championship. So those are the sort of things that led me to start looking around and saying, well, I want my goal is to pre- preserve first, and then expand uh, the Alfa Romeo Championship grids. Because, you know, and I'm, I'm an Alfa nut. Uh, I drive Alphas. I love Alphas. I wanted to see an Alfa Championship continue, and I felt that we were at risk. So you made the change, and I know it's early days and you haven't had a race yet because of the current situation, but what's your experience with the 750 MC been like so far? Uh, it's been great so far. They're extremely supportive helpful. We did the uh, Motorsport Days Live track day with them last uh, November, and we were in their garage, and they were talking to us. And t- you know, it's, it's a busy day for everybody, but we got 
a healthy dollop of their time and support. We've been there with the RSCC the previous year and had a car there on track at Bianco Twins Park. And no, nobody from the RSCC even spoke to us. They're a small, tight team. They don't have vast overheads like some of the bigger racing clubs. Um, they have a tight team that travels. It's like a traveling circus. They're easy to contact. They're easy to talk to. They're supportive and get back to you when you do. We felt very welcome. And that's all the, all the feedback I've had to date. Obviously, we've not experienced a race weekend yet. But I think everybody, when I put the deal to them that we'd nego- I'd negotiated, I started talking to them back in June last year because um, I thought these things needed to be done early. And then I put a deal to the drivers confidentially around August. And they were 100%, 100%, not 96%, not 88%, not 50%, 100% totally in support of the change. And I think only then, really, I realized how negative the feelings towards the BRSCC were. But nothing against the people who work with the BRSCC, but, you know, I felt uh, there's a different atmosphere, certainly. I know it's impossible to know for sure until they're all lined up on the grid, but I've heard encouraging things about the number of entries for this year's championships. Well, it depends. We'd have last year. We had by the end of the year, we had something like forty-two registrations, um, but we only averaged sixteen on the grid. So, <laughs> a lot of people register just because they don't particularly want to be a champion necessarily, or they can't afford to be, uh, so they have to select race meetings. So it's a bit difficult to tell at the moment. I'm always on tenterhooks before the first race. How many we're going to get? What did us did for us last year? I mean, the first race meeting last year, we got 20, I think. We had 16, 17, 21. And then we went to Mallory Park. <laughs> for some reason, half the drivers don't like Mallory. I don't know how I was. But um, I think we got 11 entries. And that, that did for us, really, in terms of our average grid. Um, so people will pick races. That's the thing. Other people will do every race meeting come what may. So at the moment, we have 25 entries. Uh, sorry, 25 registrations which is good if they all turn up. But we also have a number of other cars I know are in preparation. The drivers, because of the lockdown and everything else, actually haven't registered yet. Bianco sold all the twin sparks I had up for sale, which are five of them. Uh, there's another new twin spark just being built by a driver has raced with us before. Uh, he's built a new twin spark. And in a particularly subtle shade of yellow, I think. Yes, indeed. That's right. It's obviously the Facebook post. I know this guy preparing at 155. He's building it up. There's 164 in prospect. And Bianco building new cars. And they've got some renter drivers. So I think, unless something very strange happens, we should have 30 registered drivers by the start of racing. There's two others I know that are just waiting to to register with. They've registered with the 750 Motor Club, but they haven't paid their ARCA fee yet. And I know they're going to be racing. So... You know, it's it's it would make my life a lot easier if people just, just paid and entered everything up front. But uh, that doesn't always happen. But yeah, I'm hopeful. I've got everything crossed that by Snetterton or whenever we do start uh, racing, that we'll have a healthy grid. And certainly, we've done everything we possibly can to ensure that. We'll come back to the immediate future towards the end of the podcast. But in terms of the longer term future of the championship, are we starting to reach a point where the number of twin spark cars? which have been the core of the series for quite a long time, is starting to decline. We've seen some new models enter the championship, the Mito last season, for example. Well, what plans are there, if any, to replace the Twin Spark Cup over time? The situation with registrations at the moment is there are an equal number of registrations in all three classes. So we have about eight in each. So the power trophy, which runs to a power-to-weight ratio formula, 195 brake horsepower per 1,000 kilograms, 
uh, slightly different for diesels because of the extra torque, slightly lower figure. That was quite slow to take off. But now we've got a bigger entry, slightly bigger entry there than we do in twin sparks. So you ask, and the modified class is also looking very healthy. Touch wood. Twin sparks, I mean, we don't want to turn into a, a historic championship by default, as it were. We'd like some teeth to see more 33s and 75s racing with us. Absolutely. But we have got to look to the future. Uh, and the Mito project that David Faithful and Davy Petty started the last season was a very welcome. See, always the problem with this is who's going to take, who's going to build and develop a car from scratch? You've got to have the resources and the know-how to do that. And although we're a financially uh, sound championship, we don't have that sort of money to invest. So the fact that the two Davids actually did that was was great. It doesn't look like uh, that car will be racing this year at the moment. But we now, Paul, Paul Plant and Bianco are sort of picking up the baton there. We've now got a proposal. He's, he's building a meter race car, has commenced it. He's also building a 166, which is good to see. So at some point, what we're trying to establish, I think, is a point where we can set up a Mito class, possibly with Giuliettas, although there are difficulties leveling the playing field between the two, the two models, but certainly with Mitos. And we want the Twin Spark Cup to evolve into that. We'll have to nail down quite a detailed spec because it's Twin Spark Cup is a standard class. There's very little modification allowed. So we'd need to have a similar kind of arrangement uh, with a Mito class. But also we'd like it to be a slight step up in terms of power and pace. Not a huge one. It's still going to be a standard class. But it would help to give Twin Spark Cup drivers, it's a very competitive class, the incentive to move across to, to Mito's. So that's that's what we're working on. And we're trying to ensure as best we can by encouraging people to have the resources to do these things. Bianco, in this case, and the Davids last season as well, to help us um, get enough people who are interested in racing and are prepared to build Mitos. We've got um, you know, to get people building them and then have the car an attractive proposition uh, for drivers to move to. While not cutting up, you know, not not burning our boats either, burning our bridges, whatever the word expression is, by ending the Twin Spark Cup too early, because there are still a lot of Twin Sparks around. So we've looked at various options. One is to have power-to-weight formulae throughout, but we've also been looking at uh, a V6 class. There was a proposal last year to restructure the power trophy, so it was for V6 alphas. And that's something that may well happen in future. We didn't have enough enough cars to do it immediately, so we've had to create a different class. But we're also trying to accommodate a very, very selection of alphas. I think we had 13 or 14 different models of alpha racing last year. And that's likely to be even more this year with a 4C and highly modified Mito. And- even with a V6 class, I guess, unless people want to compete with JTS or Julia engines, you're going to hit the same problem. The Busso's not been around for quite a while now. Yeah, we've got to be careful not to put ourselves into a, a dead-end alley, as it were, a dead-end street. Um, so power-to-weight, a lot of racing is moving to power-to-weight formulae now. The problem you have is, especially with, with modern cars, modern cars are extremely complicated things te- technologically and also very difficult to, to build race cars from. The Mito guys discovered this this last year with various parts of the electronics in the car contradicting what other <laughs> what they wanted other electronics to be telling the car to do. So how it's how it's built is critically important uh, to keep it as simple as possible, but also to make sure you can enforce a level playing field. And that means rolling road tests for power, ways to ensure people can't 
I hesitate to say cheat, but shall we say find a way through the checks that are there to you know to establish an advantage to um, rebalance the balance of performance in their favour. <laughs> Indeed, yes, as you might say, most drivers would never consider that. But you know we know what motorsports like at F1 and other levels. People are always looking for an advantage, so power to weight if it can be enforced, is a very simple way of, of encouraging a wide range of models. Because we're not a one-make championship in the sense of, you know, they're all Renault Clios or they're all MR2s or something. We see the variety of cars we get in our grid as, as a strength. So it's making sure however we structure the class system that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, really, and suddenly lose lots of models because they're no longer competitive in the new structure. That's not an easy balancing act, but, you know, we see variety as key to the attraction of the championship, the visual attraction of the championship. You touched on this earlier. You mentioned Snetterton as possibly the first round, but where are we in terms of any indications of when or even whether the 2020 season might kick off? We're still uh, in suspended animation. I've been checking with 750 and Motorsport UK today. Um, Motorsport UK said there's lots of talks going on behind the scenes, encouraging noises about the fact that, particularly in club racing, which doesn't involve a crowd like you'd get at a Grand Prix, where there's packed with people, it's a little bit easier because it's an open area event for a start, but also because there are generally fewer spectators than at major racing events. So we're giving encouraging hints, but we there's still nothing definite. We know it won't start before the 1st of July. We're scheduled to be at Snetterton on the 16th and 17th, I think it is, middle of the month. Fingers crossed we're going to be there. If not, it's Festival Italia in August. But that that has its own issues because it's a different kind of event. Lots of people there go to see all the other attractions as well as the track action. The Alfa Owners Club, yourselves, you know, are always there and other motor clubs and other groups get together to go. So it's a much more populous event. It's the highlight of my racing career to win there, <laughs> I must say, because it's a real treat to race in front of a huge crowd and then win, and even better to win it. So I blew the, blew the engine up in the next race, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's another matter. But yes, it's, it may be an event which makes certain aspects of social distancing more difficult. I don't know. We'll have to see. But still nothing concrete though, Guy. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm certainly looking forward to seeing a grid full of alphas at some point this year. Thanks for taking the time to talk about your role and the plans for this season and beyond. Much appreciated. No problem. Nice to talk to you. Andy Robinson from the 750 MC Alfa Romeo Championship. As we were putting the finishing touches to this podcast... Andy got back in touch to say he'd spoken with the competitions director of the 750MC and, subject to compliance with government regulations, the Alfa Romeo Championship season will start with a double header at Snetterton on Saturday the 18th of July. This meeting was originally a triple header over two days, but with hotel and bed and breakfast accommodation being unavailable at the moment, and quite possibly still unavailable at the time of the meeting, some drivers might not have been able to do a two-day meeting. So, after a close driver vote, the decision was taken to go for a one-day double header. We know how popular David Faithful and Davy Petty's Scuderia Mito car was last season, so we followed up on Andy's comment that they might not be taking part in the championship this year. David confirmed they've struggled to find a driver for the whole season, but they are hoping to be at Festival Italia and possibly a couple of other races before the end of the season. That's it for episode 5. Next week we'll have a slightly different feel to the podcast when I'm joined by Surrey Section Secretary and Board Member Grant Richardson, Club and British Touring Car Championship legend John Dooley, and the AROC webmaster Bill Smith to talk about the AROC archive project.
As usual, you'll be able to listen to or download that episode from iTunes or your favourite podcast provider from 1.30 on Sunday. But until then, stay safe. <laughs>